Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 152 of the Quickie Podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and before I introduce today's guest, I want to have a little word with my freelance friends. Freelance designers, if you are looking to add more skills to your toolbox, looking to offer more services to your clients, maybe it's packaging, maybe it's print design for screen print, maybe it's, you know, booklet design, brochure design, you know, maybe you want to add that print skill set to your toolbox, head over to printdesignacademy.com. Right now, you are able to register as a founding member of Print Design Academy, have a smoking discounted price for the life of your membership. We're doing letterpress printed certificates for founding members. We're giving you the first access to the campus community and priority shipping on the printed tools that we're creating and the quarterly publication that we're producing. It's going to be sweet. And hey, you in-house designers, I didn't forget about you. We have spoken to many studio owners, and they all say the same thing. If you can walk in with the print design fundamentals for screen printing, offset printing, risograph, uh, letterpress, whatever, you name that kind of printing, if you can walk in with that in your toolbox, that's a huge asset to you getting that dream in-house job that you are looking for. So head over to printdesignacademy.com for the founding membership sign up, we've got limited seats and it's only open for a limited time and it will not be available again. Doors will be closing at the end of this week and they won't be opening again to the public until 2020. Printdesignacademy.com. See you there. So, today's guest, ladies and gentlemen, is Emily Chen. She's a freelance designer and art director out of London, England. She's also one of the leaders of Ladies Wine and Design for the London chapter. We all know those Ladies Wine and Design are kicking butt all over the world. During this episode, we talk about why getting a library card was what started fulfilling her creative path. Her original path, though, was into science and biology. That was her first direction. And she wasn't really sure about the arts direction until her first uh, foundation year in university. She tells us about the printed theater program that she did the design for and why it really stands out to her. She tells us about graduating the year of the recession in Paris and We all know the struggles that everybody faced during the recession, but she shares her stories that she ran into. Emily also tells us about a job recruiter that she ran into and met with around that time and the different perspective that this job recruiter was able to give her the way to, you know, sort of look at things differently. We also talk about the theater project that she had a really tough time representing the show through, but... It ended up amazing, and she tells us all about that. I loved chatting with Emily, and she has such a unique accent. You know, being born in Paris and having that sort of Paris-French accent, but being in England, there's a little bit of the London in there. Just She's super fun, super nice to talk to, and she's able to share a really unique perspective based on her journey to the creative field. So let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Emily Chen. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field. 
and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a quickie? Good morning, Emily. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with the toughest question first. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. So I'm a freelance graphic designer and art director. I'm French and I grew up and studied in Paris, but I've been based in London for the past nine years. Um, I do a bit of branding, a bit of editorial design, but mainly for the past four or five years, I've been working with theaters, creating images, trailers, posters, programs for shows, and a little bit of book design as well. That is cool. Um, so a couple of I things. Also, I also forgot to mention that I'm one of the ladies who run the Ladies Wine Design London chapter in London. The so London chapter. That's awesome. I'm, yes. uh, I'm meeting more and more of the leaders of these different ladies wine and design communities, and it's just awesome. Just awesome to hear what they're doing. Amazing. Um, so a couple of things really piqued my interest in that brief intro. The first one is theater. When I was a kid, I loved theater. Like, I still love live shows, but I mean being in theater. I did musicals like crazy. Um, I sang, I danced, I acted, and I loved it. My original career path when I was younger was I wanted to be an actor. That was the the direction I was going. Through a whole bunch of changes that life throws at us, it ended up different. But somehow, I I still love live shows. Um, And the other thing that you had mentioned is... um, about the work that you're doing for theaters. Uh, It sounded like you had some print design tossed in there too. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Um, I'm going to unpack that print design later, but I first want to dive back to the days in Paris. I want to get back to your childhood and I want to feel, or I want to hear if you feel that you had a creative childhood and what made it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my father is an artist, so I definitely had um, yeah, a creative childhood. Uh, my father was doing paintings. My mom was a nurse, so also had a kind of like rational side <laughs> to my upbringing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and I guess I was going a lot to museums, uh, galleries from a very young age. Also, something else to mention is that I'm my own only child. So I had to learn quite early on, basically, to entertain myself. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I guess uh, that was uh, a lot through reading and through drawing. Got it. So you grew up around art and seeing your dad paint. So that little bit of creativity was put into, you know, into your soul of who you were as a child, especially um, at a young yeah. age. Mm, absolutely. So what was the moment then where you first started noticing design and creative was it just seeing art or was there another moment well i've been thinking about that question a lot and i'm not sure but i wanted to share uh, an anecdote that my mom told me a couple of months ago and that i didn't remember Uh but she was saying that uh, so she used to take me to the public library down the road Uh every weekend and yeah and the librarian kept seeing us and she said, oh, why don't you get a library card for her? 
And my mom was like, she's four and she can't read. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really opinionated about which book I wanted to get. So I guess I must have been attracted to the illustration and the design. Very cool. So at age yeah. four, you were looking for the illustration design stuff and you were attracted to that naturally. Yeah. It all started with the library card. <laughs> it all started with the library card. <laughs> Um, so Emily, then what stands out to you as the most influential design of your life so far? Is it design that I've seen? It could be, yeah, you know what, for this, let's go with something that you saw and has just stuck with you. It's a really tricky question, but I guess when I went to design school, there were a few standout moments for me. Mm -hmm. And one of them was discovering polar share work for the public theater. So it kind of felt like going full circle working for the National Theater here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and we all wanted to be polar share, basically. I really remember that. <laughs> but the, the other moment was a print moment, uh, which, yeah, kind of made me think of your other question. But I remember when my teacher, so he had been to London and he brought back from his trip the Great Ideas Books series. I don't know if they made it into the US and Canada, but they're a Penguin Books published philosopher text, kind of free package in a little collection called Great Ideas that mm -hmm. was designed by David Pearson. And I remember when he took the books out of his bag and we were all kind of like hurdling around him to have a look at the book and then the digital students came out and they were like, oh, he's just looking at books, what's wrong with you? But they were just beautiful objects because they, every cover is different and it's kind of like uh, inspired by the typography, the print of the period the text was written, whether it's like Plateau or Voltaire. And the only thing that kind of links the designs together is the color palette, which was red and black, and the fact that the cover were embossed and typography only. So yeah, I really remember that moment. Wow. So what was that, what was that book called? It's a collection of books called Great Ideas. Great Ideas. Yeah. Got it. That sounds cool. I haven't heard of that one, but I definitely want to look up that set now. Yeah. The Great Ideas by Penguin Books. Yeah, designed by David Pearson. And I think for it really shows what design can do because all those texts had been in the public domain for years. Mm -hmm. But it was like a massive publishing phenomenon and they ended up doing like three or four series, I think. That's cool. I'm a big lover of books and um, especially like brand and design books that just uh, so beautiful. Love them. Yeah. I want to just dive back a little bit here and hear a bit more about your high school to art school. Like, how did all that go th go through? Like, what was the process of that for you? Well, I was actually, yeah, I was a good student and I wasn't sure I was going to go to art when I went to high school. Mm -hmm. I was actually really drawn to biology and yeah, science. But I also had, as an option, I had music because I also played the flute. <laughs> and uh, we had an amazing music teacher in that high school. So, yeah, I signed up for her class. But I also had a few kind of like friends that were in the arts, visual arts option. Mm -hmm. 
And through them, I kind of learned a little bit about, I guess, career in applied arts. I had always drawn, but I didn't really see it as a career. I couldn't see myself being an artist like my dad. I needed some kind to apply it to something. So yeah, through those friends, I kind of learned about career in the arts, and I decided to try getting into um, a foundation year. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've got that, but yeah, it's like a year where you just try lots of different visual disciplines, whether it's like fashion, product, architecture, graphic design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that was kind of like a decision I made at my last year of high school. Yeah. So during that foundation year where you're sort of testing the waters of architecture and fashion design and all these different parts of the sort of arts and creative world, what what was it about graphic design or that really clicked with you that really connected with you i guess it was about conveying ideas through an image that i really connected with maybe it's through having gone to like a lot of museum and just learning to kind of analyze images compositions and stuff like that kind of picking that up from going to museum it just felt like the most um yeah the most easier to grasp discipline out of the one i did at foundation yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Got it. So that pointed you in that direction. And then once you made that decision, did you then go to art school, art college, or what was the next couple of years? So the system is different in France. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got, yeah, design schools, but the, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to explain that, but yeah, it's like public in the sense that uh, the, the studies are free or just like really cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're really selective because there's very few places in each class. So after my, well, I had to apply to go to, a fa- to do the foundation year in a very good design school. Mm-hmm. And I got in. And then at the end of the year, you have to apply to get into BA classes in well, either the same school or different schools. Uh-huh. But you have to, send lo- yeah, to apply to lots of places if you really want to have a chance to get a place somewhere. Yeah. Got it. Got it. All right, I've got the journey. So then once you graduated and had that art, um, you know, the art background, that art education, what yeah. did you do with that? Was it immediately into studio life and in the workforce and did that for a number of years before going freelance? Or what was that journey? Um, I tried, well, one thing is in France, in design school, you have to do internships. It's mandatory. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I did a couple of those, those, and that was my first experience. Uh, yeah. Working in design. There was one that was at a publishing house. There was another at a design studio. Um, but yeah, what was tough for me is I graduated the year of the recession. Ooh, yep. Yeah, that was pretty brutal and no one was hiring. So, yeah, I mean, I think we'll get into that in another a later question. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was a really tough moment. And I sent so many applications. I had to do internships after internships. Yeah, it was a really long process before I could get to yeah a permanent position. And then, yeah, I did an internship in London, kind of fell in love with the city. Mm-hmm. But I had to go back to France after that because... I had a summer job lined up. After the summer job, I found, uh, it took a few months, but I found a job in Paris, which was kind of junior creative art worker for mm-hmm. a small studio. I was paid minimum wage and I was st- 
staying at my parents to save money. And after a few months, I was like, I'm really not enjoying this. I'm going to use the money I saved to go back to London and have a, yeah, try my chance, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Got a picture of the journey back and forth between London and Paris a bit in the studios, mm. out of the studios. Um, I want to now ask you, Emily, who are some of the designers and brands that you look up to and closely follow now? And what about them do you like? I was thinking about that and I realized most of the designers I really look up to now are people uh, that I admire for the kind of the work they do outside of work, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's people with self-initiated projects or more arts and artist approach to design. So people like Tim Goodman or Chantal Martin, Jessica Walsh. Um, yeah, because... I find the the creative output outside of the client's work really interesting and really personal as well. It's like it addresses questions that are more about what it means to be human. And I find it really interesting. Um, In terms of brands, there's actually really not that many brands that I look up to anymore. I was really struggling to find one uh, to to talk about. And Mm -hmm. the only one I could think of is uh, Billy. The um, I think it's a razor brand, and they've been doing a really interesting kind of like thing this year. Like the the last campaign was about facial hair, mm-hmm. and just celebrating the mustache because it's November. <laughs> and I thought that was a really clever take. I yeah. like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and <laughs> one other thing as well is people would talk about design, but not necessarily about for the design output, but how they approach the discipline. Um, there's um, a woman that I met here in London, which is absolutely incredible. She co- she's called Anushka Kandwala. And when I met her, she had just uh, written her thesis, um, BA thesis, about women of color in the design industry. Mm-hmm. Where, where are they? And since then, she's been doing a lot, of, a lot more writing. And yeah, for example, she wrote an article about decolonizing design for the I on design, the IGA blog. Mm-hmm. And I find that really fascinating because it's really about unpacking what design does and yeah, and learning a lot of things that we think we know about design. That actually design history and stuff like that comes with a lot of BS because it's down to who's been able to write that history and uh, basically it's been white men from the US or from Europe. So yeah, it's about learning to talk about a more diverse approach to design. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, mm, I gotta really look up that article. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, I wanna now slide a little bit into print and packaging, Emily. Um, I wanna hear how you have utilized print and print design in your career. And you know, any stories around print or packaging that you can share with us? Yeah, um, I've dabbed into print design, uh, in and out of print design for the yeah the whole of my career, and I really like it. There's something so um, I don't know, so amazing about a tangible object mm-hmm. and how you can just uh, yeah create a, a desirable object just by playing with I don't know print finishes, special links, yeah. There's something really nice about that, and I really like to do it, but I don't feel like I get to do it enough, <laughs> at least. Not anymore, anyway, yeah. 
Got it. So have you, for your recent theater projects, um, mm-hmm. are you doing any print design? Are you printing programs or putting things like that together? Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely still do program. The, the format is set, the paper, the paper stock, all of that is set as well. But when I used to work at the National Theater, what was lovely is we could use special inks. So, yeah, I loved trying to just print with special inks. That was like really amazing. Yeah, getting to play around with that. Yeah, there's one especially that really stand up for me. It was a play about uh, an actress who struggled with drug addiction and who Mm. goes into rehab. And I just used two special tones, which were a kind of green, emerald green, and um, a bright blue Uh to print the whole program, including the text. And uh, so the images and the text were all in blue. And you had the, the green was kind of bleeding from the inside margin onto both pages. That's cool. Do you have a copy of that? Like, did you bring one back and you keep that with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I keep a record of everything I work on. Yeah. Awesome. I've got my special archive. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect <laughs> where you stash all that stuff. Yeah. Okay, Emily, you saw the questions and now we're getting to the tough stuff. Mm-hmm. The next few questions I have for you take you through part of your career where you likely made some mistakes, learned some lessons, and I want to pull those stories out and share those with the listeners. Yeah. So what has been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I graduated the year of the recession and finding a job was really tough. So I first found a job in Paris. It was hard to get there, but... I managed to get that job. And then after I decided to leave and come back to London, that's when the hardest part actually started. Uh-huh. Because I, so I moved back to London and had something like a year, you know, half experience, but I couldn't find work. Uh-huh. I was, yeah, I'd sent probably 100, 100 applications and hardly heard back from anyone. Wow. I managed to get a couple of internships at nice places, but yeah, it was like paid 300 pounds per month. And yeah, it was really, really tough. Started picking odd bits of freelance, but yeah, it had, after six months, I was just really discouraged mm-hmm. and feeling really close to give up. And yeah, I think I was at a very low point and probably starting to be a bit depressed. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got an interview with a design recruiter, one of the big design recruiters in London. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I went there, presented to him projects from my book. And yeah, and at the end, I look at him and he looked back at me and he said, you know, if you can't get a job, it's not because you're not good enough. It's because the jobs are going to British white middle class boys. Oh my. Yeah. So that was uh, a big slap, but yeah. I think it was exactly what I needed to hear because mm-hmm. I was getting to a point where I was like, well, I'm probably not good enough. Mm-hmm. I probably don't have what it takes. And him saying that to me, I realized I'm not the problem here. And also he started giving me advice in terms of what I could do about that. Obviously, I can't change my name. I can't change where I come from. I can't change my accent, even though I've been working on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, he made me, he said, you need to appear confident and to show that you can be part of the team with the boys. 
Mm -hmm. So he made me practice my handshake. He made me represent the project and he, made, he corrected me all the time in terms of the words I was using. It was like, you need to be more assertive, more confident. You need to say, I did this. So yeah, it was a real crash course in, yeah, <laughs> acting like a boy. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, yeah. I knew it, but yeah, I definitely, yeah, I definitely had to change my attitude and to, yeah, practice to appear more confident. And also I'm an introvert, so... I needed to learn to act more extroverted as well. Interesting. So it was a situation where this recruiter had told you, this is what's happening. Your work is great, but mm. let's look at some other ways, um, you know, that you can get some attention than yeah. just the work. Yeah. And do you feel like that's kind of backwards now? Uh, what do you mean backwards? Backwards a little bit from the standpoint of the work should speak though, shouldn't it? Yeah, but at the same time, I think a lot of us forget that we still focus on getting the work right, the portfolio right, mm -hmm. but we forget all the rest and that ultimately people want someone that does amazing work, but they also someone that they can sit next to five days a week for eight hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, personality you know, so, does matter. And actually... Yeah. Yeah, good point, you know, because a lot of companies also look at not hiring based on talent, but mm -hmm. hiring based on, you know, personality and making sure that it's a good cultural fit. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Got it. So, well, well said, Emma. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's tough. So getting through that was basically just learning, you know, some new skills that, uh, not skills, but... Um, different ways of interacting and showcasing your personality more and p putting less of a spotlight on the work and more of a spotlight on you, which originally you feared doing? I guess I didn't even think about it. And mm. well, there's probably a couple of things going on there as well is that culturally I came from France. So I think my cover letters or cover emails were just, too formal and too rambling. Mm -hmm. So that's no surprise that after that, my first job, I got through a recruiter because I didn't have to do that myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and then uh, the other one is about, yeah, I guess unconscious bias in that people just hire people that kind of look or sound like them. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, and that I couldn't change again. I couldn't change who I was, but then it was about being really paying really attention to how people were behaving, kind of like, I don't know, mirroring some of the things they were saying, laughing at the jokes, like all of that I had to, yeah, just be more attentive to, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So I want to dive a little bit deeper now, Emily, and I want to talk about a specific design or project that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result. What was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story? Yeah, I've been thinking about that and there's lots of examples I could talk about, about things where, yeah, just like clients changing mind or stuff like that. But I felt like the, the biggest story, uh, the biggest, well, the most interesting story and probably the most uncomfortable for me to say is once when I was wrong and I approached the project wrong, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I was working for a show which was set in uh, an African barbershop. Okay. Um, and yeah, the story was just set in a lot of cities 
in African barbershops on the same day and you make connections between the different places. Um, it was quite a challenging project for me because obviously that's not my culture. I'm not a man. I've never been into a barbershop, let mm-hmm. alone an African barbershop. But yeah, I mean, at the National Theatre, we were, yeah, we just had to pick on all kind of different stories and mm-hmm. run with it, even though it was really far from our own personal experience in a very short amount of time. And uh, for that specific project, I just approached it the, the way I usually do. I came up with lots of ideas I felt was really good and interesting. And so something that I should mention is when you create work for theater, unless there's a big name attached to it, you usually don't have any actors cast at the stage where you have to create the image. So what I usually do is try to find solution where either you hide the face with some kind of interesting graphic device. Either you go with a still life or something where you don't have to show the person's face. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did that time. And then the, we presented the concept to the writer and director and the director kind of challenged us. It was like, well, it's, um, it's a human story and I want to have a face on the poster. I want mm-hmm. faces poster. And yeah, and he was referring to the African barbershop signs, which are painted directly on the walls of mm-hmm. the barbershops in Africa. And yeah, and there was a big discussion with marketing because we felt like the style of those illustrations was, well, for one, it would be challenging to show a lot of faces on the posters, just in terms of having the image being flexible for to work as a thumbnail as well as big this kind of thing. And then the style of illustration they were nervous about because they felt like it was um, it's really naive and they felt like to speak to a London audience, they wanted something that felt contemporary and they wanted photography. So at the end, um, the midway house we found is uh, I suggested just shooting um, um, a guy in a chair, in a barber chair. And yeah, we did the shoot, it went well, we got the image just in time for our print deadline. But I was really disappointed because, yeah, my school of design have been that, yeah, if you've got an apple, you Mm -hmm. don't write apple on top of it. And in that case, the poster had the word barbershop on it and you had a guy in the barbershop. It just felt like obvious. And I felt like it was not, yeah, it was not saying really anything new about the play. And yeah, I just was really disappointed with it. And then something started happening is that the show happened, uh, opened at the National Theatre and it was a massive hit. And the the audience was just people that never come to the theatre before, like the black British community just showed up in huge numbers. And uh, the marketing team did research and they asked them, what they saw about the poster and they just all loved it. And that's where I realized the power of representation that those people don't see themselves reflected on the national stage or when they do, it's like either a gangster or a slave. Mm-hmm. So to have their face big on the, on, the, in the, on the tube and on the bus, to have someone that could be their brother or their son or their boyfriend felt really powerful. Wow. Yeah. So in so, that your your design yeah. mind is going this is not creative enough. This is too obvious. Like this isn't going to resonate and you're worried from that side. 
But in the end, it resonated with a whole different audience that you weren't expecting. And through... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I think a problem that we can have at Creative is we have blind spots Uh and we can design just for ourselves and our peers sometimes. Uh So, but... It's not about designing for to win awards or to have like your peers accolade. It's uh-huh. about getting people into the theater and people that have never gone into the theater. And that was such a big lesson. And the show has transferred to the US, to Australia. It came back to London and they've kept the image, even though the face on the poster, the guy on the poster have never been in the show. Wow. Yeah. What a powerful experience. What a great lesson. That was a massive lesson, yeah. Okay, Emily, I'm going to turn this bus around for you. And I want to now ask you about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I actually have two. (laughs) Okay. Um, So one of them is my first project for the National Theatre. So... It was a really interesting time to join the National Theatre because uh, there was a change of artistic director. Uh-huh. Rufus Norris uh, took yeah took that role, and for his first play as director, as artistic director, but directing for the National Theatre, uh-huh. he chose a play called Every Man, which is a middle-aged moral tale about God sending death on us to fetch a character called Every Man. And every man gets scared and runs away and goes to his friend, his family and everyone and asks them to do a reckoning for him and to say that he's been a good guy and he deserves to stay, mm-hmm. basically. And the thing is, it was going to be an adaptation by poet Caroline Duffy, but the adaptation wasn't ready when I had to create the image. So mm-hmm. all I had to work from was the middle-aged moral tale. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> and some notes from the director, but at that stage, it was so early stage that they didn't really know what it would look like on stage. They hadn't decided what God would look like on stage. So, yeah, uh, all I had to work from was kind of like, yeah, concept. And what was the big idea there? And the big idea was, yeah, a kind of like man that has forgotten about the important things. So I decided to... Um, show every man as that little man on his phone and mm-hmm. you've got that massive giant finger etching kind of hovering over him mm-hmm. and uh yeah and uh, the director loved it and all he said is that he wanted to ground it into a contemporary setting because my original illustration was really graphic so we kind of like yeah photoshopped it into um kind of concrete environment and I pitched the idea to actually do the same installation at the National Theatre, at the venue, to have that giant finger there. And the, everyone loved the idea and they made it happen, even though there was no budget to start with for this. Yeah. And it was a massive hit on social media. Like We had a little hashtag just under the, the finger on the temporary theatre with the hashtag, I am everyman. And yeah, I mean, you would see like school kids queue at lunchtime to get the picture under the giant finger that is so cool yeah what a fun one that was a really fun run yeah um so yeah that's the first project i'm really proud of and it really shows that sometimes you need to yeah just 
think outside of the box and go beyond the brief to suggest something. And if people love it, they will find the budget to make it happen. You know what? That's so funny. Budget is such an interesting term because, you know, if it's such a great idea and it's going to really make a project and push it over the edge, yeah, you always find the budget. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first thing I'm really proud of. And then the second one, yeah, as I mentioned in my introduction, I run the Ladies Wine Design London chapter uh-huh. with uh, a couple of friends. And it's been an amazing experience. So for those who don't know, Jessica Walsh from, uh, yeah, the designer in New York, started an initiative a couple of years ago. And she she realized that there were really few women in senior position in the design industry. Uh-huh. And that the women that were there were competitive rather than supportive. And she wanted to change that. So she came up with the idea to create that monthly salon night in New York, uh-huh. where the first seven women to answer her, the call basically could join her after work have a glass of wine and discuss work life creativity and she posted a call out on her social media saying if you want to start a chapter in your city just get in touch and we'll set you up mm-hmm. and I, I did that <laughs> basically i did that back in i think it was march 2016 and someone from her team said oh someone else from london has been in touch she's an illustrator I'll put you in touch and off you go. Very so, cool. So, yeah. And it's been an amazing ride. So we started, yeah, really small, just like eight women around the table in a pub. And now, yeah, three years later, we've, gone, we've become really big. We're running events every month. We've done talks, panel discussions, uh, workshops portfolio reviews we've become really popular so dna the new blood asked us to set up a special portfolio review with 16 women twice in the past year yeah it's Very been cool. incredible and we've met yeah we've met so many inspiring women and yeah it's just amazing to be able to help women through the community so there are people who found jobs there are there's women that come to us and say, "Oh, I've I've met my best friends through Ladies Wine Design. How <laughs> cute is that?" <laughs> now, I love yeah. hearing I love hearing about what all the Ladies Wine and Design chapters are doing. Um, you know, I hear about the local one in Vancouver here the most, just because that's where I'm from. Um, obviously, I don't yeah. attend, but I like to hear <laughs> what they have going on and what they're what they're doing, and just hear how fast it's uh it's spreading and how fast they're all growing so that's super cool to hear yeah well emily you've reached the part of the show for the ask it forward question that's where i have a question for you for my last guest and you get the opportunity to ask a question of the next guest i'm not going to tell you who they are but you can ask them anything so my last guest was a gentleman by the name of Aaron Masick. He is a senior designer at uh, a company called Upper Deck. They manufacture um, or design and manufacture um, really high-end hockey cards and baseball cards. Um, I grew up on Upper Deck hockey cards. So it was super cool to connect with him because, um, mm. you know, the senior designer and art director of their NHL side. Um, it was just awesome. Awesome talking to him. So... He wanted to ask you if yeah. you could design or lead creative for any company out there, any business out there, any big company, big name, big celebrity, whoever, whatever, any big company or name, who would it be and what would you bring to the table? 
Oh God, that's a really tough question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I feel really lucky because I feel like I'm already doing my dream job. I want to do the theater poster and book covers when I was at uni and yeah, and I've worked at the National Theater and at Penguin Books now. So where do you go from there? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it would be amazing to work for a big art institution now, like maybe the Tate in the UK. Uh-huh. Or, I mean, yeah, if I could work for an artist, someone like Beyonce, obviously, it would be mind-blowing, but I'm definitely not the right person there, so I won't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> so if you did that work for... Um was it the Tate that you said? Yeah. Yeah. What What would you bring to the table? What would you be able to, to do for them? Or what would you want to change or do? Oh, actually, even better than the Tate, I'd say the V&A. Okay. The Victorian Albert Museum is, yeah, is a, a big art and design museum in London. Okay. And they've got that incredible collections, yeah, ranging from, I don't know, like glass, metal, prints, paintings, fashion. They've got an amazing fashion collection. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I guess f- fusing all the disciplines mm-hmm. is really interesting. They've got a theater archive as well, an incredible theater archive. So yeah, I think I'd love to work for them because yeah, they just span across so many art disciplines that I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Emily, what is your ask it forward question? Hmm. I think what that might be a bit obvious, but that's always interesting is what advice would you give your younger self? Hmm. It's a classic one. It's a classic, but it's really interesting. And I think people at different stages of their life might answer differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it. Emily, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. That is the end of the Quickie Podcast. Thank you for having me. No, I really appreciate your time. All right, everybody. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time. I'm uh, back tomorrow. So we'll see you then. Bye.